So, if you're uh, new to the class, uh, you might want one of these. I'll just start passing them. Well, you guys are new. Uh, this is our framework for thinking through difficult issues. Um, and uh, what we're going to, we've looked over the last year uh, to see that some things uh, as Christians are central, um, foundational, other things entailed in that are necessary. There's room for flexibility, and there are some things that are just outside of the scope of, of uh, Christian faith and practice. So as we've tried to navigate this in ways that take seriously the, the perimeter that we see there, uh, love of God and neighbor, biblical plot line, the rule of faith, um, we have uh, looked at hell, because I thought that would be an easy place to start. Um, and then uh, we talked about um, how we might understand women in ministry, uh, science and faith issues, and maybe one other one. Oh yeah, just war and pacifism. Uh, and you guys are still showing up, and I've got no hate mail or hate email yet. Um, I do have an office phone that's unplugged, uh, so if there's voicemails, I have no idea. Um, and I should have said that before I hit record. Um, <laughs> So today we're going to uh, talk a little bit, or maybe begin the conversation about how Christians might think about uh, gay marriage um, and some things related to that. Probably most nervous about this conversation uh, than any others because of, um, I think how, and well, on the one hand, maybe how divisive this conversation has become, um, and because, uh, I don't know, it feels like there's more at stake in this, um, in the church and in the ramifications. Um, so, I still feel like it's necessary to have a conversation on this topic, though. Um, because, one, I, often it seems like the conversations that I'm privy to are not modeled well, with the maybe right kinds of humility and thoughtfulness. Um, and... Uh, over the last few years, one of the things that, uh, maybe it's listening in on this conversation, that's, that's made me aware of um, the insufficient, maybe poor ways that Christians on both sides of the issue, I'm not singling any one out, but on both sides of the issues are um, making ethical and doctrinal decisions in ways that just, just aren't enough. Uh, for thoughtful, uh, informed Christians. And one of the things that we started out this class with uh, was me saying that the appeal to platitudes and proof texts, yeah, and what I feel uh, is not that those are irrelevant, but they are insufficient, uh, particularly as conversation enders. Uh, so if you think that this or any other of these controversial topics uh, can be um, can be explained or the right view on all this by a, a simple appeal to some platitude, by uh, giving me an Old Testament quote from Leviticus, uh, or by telling me about how you as an individual feel, I would say, well, those, those are pieces of the conversation, but it's certainly not the end of the conversation. And as Christians, uh, we need to do better than that. Uh, so that's what I'm going to hope uh, to try to model and to get the conversation going this week and next week. Much of our focus this week uh, will be me saying, here's how uh, 
I have experience of this in uh, maybe the wrong way or insufficient ways. And then next week, I'll try to do something a little bit more uh, constructive. As I say, here is how I understand uh, this as a Christian, maybe how we should navigate this. So let me give a few preliminary marks, remarks to, um, to frame uh, what we're going to be doing this week and next week. Uh, one, I, I'm going to just take for granted, I'm going to assume uh, that uh, for Christians, as we're thinking through this issue, for Christians, sex uh, is something that is reserved for married couples only. Uh, so this conversation is not going to be about um, whether, uh, as we're going to talk about same-sex sexual activity, is that okay outside the context of marriage or anything like that. This is going to be narrowed in. Uh, to uh, same-sex sexual activity within the context of marriage um, because I think it's uh, the Christian tradition, the New Testament teaching, uh, makes it pretty clear that uh, sex is to be reserved for marriage. So this is not, um, can is same-sex sexual activity okay just across the board? The conversation for the church to have is, is that appropriate within the context of marriage? Um, so... Here's how I'm thinking uh, that we might um, we might be working through this uh, framework. Um, as a Christian, uh, practicing sexual morality uh, is part of the necessary um, lifestyle of discipleship. Um, that's that shouldn't be too um, controversial. Uh, it's certainly not central. Um, what central is what Jesus has done and what God the Father has done. Um, but part of being a disciple is to practice sexual morality. That's just been what it's meant to be a Christian from uh, AD 33. Um, and it's worth noting that this wasn't simply a Christian's um, kind of locking in to whatever the cultural expectations about sexual morality were. Christians were, were weird when it came to their own practices of sexual morality. So they had a distinctive um, view on these things. Um, so they were closer to Jews, certainly, uh, but in the larger Greco-Roman world, uh, it was common for um, a man not only to have sex with his wife, but to have a mistress, to visit temple prostitutes, uh, and even to sleep with young boys. Uh, these were all considered normal, yeah, that kind of look you're giving me, that was considered normal sexual behavior for males in the ancient Greco-Roman world. I point this out merely to say, it wasn't as though Christians were just saying, um, we are uh, embracing first century sexual morality standards. They were distinct. They were even seen as weird uh, because of their practices. So, early on, uh, and that's continued to be something. So, our question then, for this class... Uh, that we're going to be thinking about. Um, we might put something like gay marriage up here with a question mark. Uh, what we're going to be thinking is uh, same-sex marriage, does this fall within the range of flexible that Christians might agree to disagree on? Or uh, is the larger biblical and traditional witness saying that it is outside of Christian doctrine and practice? That's, so kind of narrow in on what the conversation is going to be about. Um, for this, for this class. Set with me on this, so this isn't kind of broad. Uh, this is meant intentionally to be narrowed in there. Um, so gay marriage and by extension, same-sex sexual activity within uh, the context of covenantal marriage. 
Um, so, second preliminary remark to, uh, to get us going um, is that we need to be mindful that our language, uh, I'm going to try to do my best, language shifts, and I'm sure I've probably already said something I shouldn't have, uh, but, uh, you know, we're all works in progress, but we're going to try to make sure our language is um, is more specific and not just these broad blank, blanket statements. Um, so we have a sociologist, right, Hunter? Is that your training? Where are you? I saw you earlier. All right, and what you were telling me, one of the things you say is define your terms, right? That's, that's your, your recurring thing you tell your students. Um, so we're going to try to, uh, to work at, um, at defining our terms or being clear about what we are speaking of. So um, for the most part, as I've said, we're going to be speaking about same-sex uh, marriage and uh, same-sex sexual activity. Uh, which is more narrow than something like same-sex attraction um, uh, for, for the purpose of this class. We're also, um, I'm going to postpone the question about uh, gender dysphoria, transgender issues for a couple weeks and maybe get to it in a third week. So we're not going to bring that in uh, to the conversation. Um, so I think our proper acronym is LGB, if I'm getting this right, uh, without the T at this point. Um, and, uh, and part of what that means, then, is we, we are not going to speak with stereotypes, uh, as though all gay and lesbian persons believe the same thing or have the same upbringing or cultural environment or whatever it might be. Uh, so we'll try to be more specific so that the conversation um, can be more productive. <laughs> How'd I do, Hunter? Is that, am I doing okay? Yeah. I need to get you a taboo buzzer. Uh, and you, whenever I mess up, you can just you can get me. So why, why might this be important? This brings me to my third, third um, preliminary kind of statement in all this. I'm not just up here trying to be PC. I'm not, it's not about fearing the language police. There's, there's a couple reasons why I think this matters, that we do this conversation well, uh, and that we do it with, uh, with thoughtfulness and precision. Uh, one of those is just being missionally aware. Um, Jesus calls uh, his disciples to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Um, and I think part of what that means is that uh, when we um, try to navigate what it means to be Christian in our culture, uh, we, are, we try to be aware of, um, of how we might be placing unnecessary obstacles between the gospel and others hearing the gospel. Uh, and so if we, if we speak with stereotypes or these large kind of generic statements, um, then it might make it hard uh, for the gospel to be heard. And uh, I think that we can see that in the, um, in the way that Christians are often caricatured, sometimes, often unfairly, but nonetheless Christians have gotten a caricature in pop culture uh, as, as being, um, uh, I don't know, um, is maybe failing at this. Now, that's not always a fair caricature. Sometimes it is. Uh, and so we would be wise not to place unnecessary obstacles between the gospel and others hearing it. Another reason why it matters that we do this wisely is just the law of love. Um, that's something that uh, Hunter helped alert me to. Is uh, now Tell me if I'm getting this, if I need to clarify this, but the suicide and homelessness rates are much higher uh, for... Um, gay and lesbian teens than for straight teens. Am I, am I accurate on that? So um, if, we, if we treat this topic um, 
as uh, if we even speak in and scornful ways um, or dismissive ways, um, then uh, we we may be adding harm where we need to be adding healing. Um, so this doesn't mean that you can't hold convictions. It doesn't mean you can't uh, um, retain a, a traditional Christian ethic on this. Uh, but it does mean uh, that we do so aware of uh, some of the devastating effects that this can have on our teenagers um, who are trying to navigate this. So um, something to be aware of as we do this well. Fourth thing, I've got five of these. (laughs) I told you I was nervous about speaking on this. Um, Part of the difficulty is I feel a little hypocritical because we're speaking about sexual morality and I am very aware of my own struggles with sexual immorality. Lust of the eyes, that's one of my vices. We all have ours. That one's mine. And it's hard for me to talk about the ethics of um, sexual morality when I know my own struggles. Um, in a parallel way. So, please don't hear me up here as the saint. Um, I'm more like the guy with the plank in his eye trying to help others see through the speck in their eye. And fifth, our focus for this class will be on um, the same-sex sexual marriage uh, as the church should see it, not about what the state should or should not do. That's a different conversation. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. The church should know how to think about that wisely, but that's not what we're doing in this class. Uh, Before the church um, thinks about uh, how they might vote or what laws they might might be in favor of or against, uh, the church needs to figure out their own beliefs on these things uh, and why. So, um, and we, I think we recognize this in other areas. Uh, we, in the kind of basic sexual morality, the, the church believes that sex should be reserved for marriage, but we're not seeking to pass laws that make it illegal to have sex outside of marriage um, because Christians have kind of discerned that the sexual ethic um, that is for the church is not something that needs to be the law for those outside the church. So that's not me making a statement one way or another about what the state should or should not do. It's merely saying that's not the topic, and I don't feel um, that I even know uh, that I'm competent to help navigate that topic. Um, So this is going to be how the church uh, should think about this as the church uh, without stepping beyond that for the sake of um, this class. Um, all right, so, thank you. Um, so let me, let me give you an example of how, um, how I've seen this conversation take place uh, in ways that I think are ultimately insufficient um, for doing this well. Before next week, we're going to get to more constructive teaching. <clears throat>
So as I said, week one we talked about uh, platitudes, proof text, and appealing to how we might feel, which is sometimes seen as equivalent to discerning the spirit. And as I said, um, here, this is going to be our theme for this. Insufficient, not irrelevant. For all of these things. So what I'm, I'm going to show is um, how I've seen platitudes, proof text, and appeal to feeling as meant to be kind of conversation enders. Uh, and what I'm going to say is those are insufficient, but it doesn't mean that then we throw them out. We just have to put them in the right framework. And part of that is that bullseye thing that I handed out might give us a better framework. But let me, let me show this maybe by, um, uh, by going through these three, since uh, this, is, this is a common thing that I've, I've noticed. Okay. So... Here are something like three platitudes um, that I've heard as a way of ending the conversation. Something like, it's natural, so it must be okay. Or, uh, we are not to judge. Or something about, it's not loving to say, uh, no to this, or to put up restrictions with regard to same-sex uh, marriage. Um, so, I mean, you've heard, I'm sure, some sort, something equivalent to this as conversation enders. Uh, so let me, let me maybe demonstrate why, um, why these are insufficient, though not irrelevant. Uh, and that would be um, how we think about... Um, maybe a parallel idea of sexual morality. Um, I know many, many men, uh, myself included, um, have um, sexual desire for women uh, who we are not married to, um, and that is natural. Um, I, most men I know uh, experience this. Um, and yet, I would think that almost every Christian would say, you better not act on that. Uh, and if you say, you better not act on that. You're recognizing that even if you have a natural <coughs> desire, it doesn't mean that it's licensed to act on it. Um, and even though uh, we are told not to judge, we recognize that's more like don't condemn. It doesn't mean don't hold others accountable. Um, and similarly, uh, by saying don't go have an affair, that's actually quite a loving thing to do, not a unloving thing to do. Uh, to tell someone no. So my point is, uh, not that, that these are irrelevant, but that they're just insufficient because we don't use them outside of this conversation in such conversation-ending ways. Does that make some sense? Um, uh, in my own, my own um, experience, um, let's talk about, about this one. I, I, it seems to me that, that um, way too much ink is spilt on trying to say whether um, same-sex sexual attraction is nature or nurture, um, as not because that question's irrelevant, but 
way too much ink is spilled as though that is going to determine what the church should or should not do in regards to this. That conversation is important for how the church might engage in this pastorally, but as far as making a doctrinal uh, or ethical um, um, I don't know, belief or framing that, uh, then it's just, it's not enough to guide the church. There's all kinds of natural things that we say, yeah, you got to curb that, uh, or you can't um, engage in that. So, I think, uh, just talking with students and from my own reading, that uh, there's a both and to this, nature and nurture, and I don't care if you disagree with me on that, uh, because I don't think it's ultimately um, the most important thing, but I do know uh, that especially in the, I'd say especially, maybe my experience, um, of, of counseling and talking to students who have same-sex attraction, many of them really wish they could change, uh, and they just, it's not like a, a, a switch that you can, they can turn on and off. And so um, I, I don't have any problem saying, yeah, that's, that seems to be something maybe you were uh, born with, um, or born predisposed to, however you might think about it. Um, but nor do I say, therefore, that's the end of our thinking about this. Um, it's just one piece of a larger uh, conversation. Um, so if we spend time as a church arguing about this issue as though uh, if we solve it, we're done, then we're just being, I think, a little bit, uh, that's a nice way of saying, dumb. Um, um, so, yeah, I guess we can, I'm getting enough head nods, I think people realize that, uh, again, it's not that it's irrelevant, it's just not sufficient for uh, this conversation. Uh, maybe, maybe the next thing we will look at um, is how certain proof texts just are not sufficient either to end the conversation. Again, not irrelevant. So um, a couple that, that sometimes show up is we have Genesis 19, which is Sodom and Gomorrah, and Leviticus 20, I believe it's verse 18, 13. Leviticus 20, 13. And we'll get into the New Testament uh, next week, but um, these represent the kind of ways that I've heard people try to end the conversation that just aren't particularly insightful or thoughtful. Um, we can take Genesis 19 as an example. Uh, so Lauren and I lived um, in Pasadena when I was doing my PhD work, and uh, somehow we got this great place that was on Colorado Boulevard, which is where the, um, the Rose Bowl parade would go by. Incredible. One of the most beautiful... Uh, all these floats are covered in, they have, all have to be covered in organic material. So flowers, seeds, leaves, it's just, it's just amazing. But then at the end of this incredible um, parade uh, were picketers saying things like, God hates fags and Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and, and all this. And it was like, it was just so ugly after such beauty. Uh, and appealing to something like the Sodom and Gomorrah account as though that ends the conversation is just, what's a nice word for dumb? Um, so if you are familiar with that account, um, this is um, about uh, those three uh, strangers, angels, visitors, whoever they might be, uh, who go to Sodom and the men of the town come and they want to rape them. 
no one who's advocating for gay marriage uh, is advocating for rape. Uh, and that's what's going on in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, at least in part. Uh, and so it's way, way too big of a leap to go from Genesis 19 to all forms of same-sex sexual activity. We can add to that a closer reading of Genesis 18 and 19. Um, Genesis 18, those three visitors come to Abraham. And what you see is Abraham goes over the top in showing hospitality to them um, and, and shows them uh, welcome. And then those three go to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and rather than experiencing hospitality, uh, they are threatened to be raped. Um, and so part of what Genesis 18 and 19 is getting at uh, is not that God is striking down Sodom and Gomorrah because uh, their men were attracted to other men, uh, but because that is... Uh, yet a further example of the, uh, the, the attempt to rape the visitors, the ones you're supposed to show hospitality to, uh, is just kind of the, uh, another illustration of how corrupt Sodom and Gomorrah have become in the way they treat their visitors. Then, in Ezekiel, I don't know if you've heard this, but here uh, is what's, uh, what the later prophets talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's worth us hearing this. Um, because uh, it helps us um, not talk about what God did to those people, but maybe allow it to hit a little closer and more uncomfortable. Um, this, this is Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. I didn't see any picketers at the end of that parade talking about people who had too much to eat and weren't helping the poor and needy. <coughs> they were haughty and did detestable things before me. So, however we hear the Sodom and Gomorrah story, we would be wise to hear it as Ezekiel uh, describes it, that the sin was not consensual same-sex sexual activity, uh, but it was an attempt to rape uh, the visitor on top of the larger sins of being arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned for the poor and needy. That hurts a little bit, right? Um, at least I can feel that. So Genesis 19, again, not irrelevant. We might hear um, what, what, uh, what's going on there and see if it, if it has any impact on the conversation, but it's certainly not a conversation ender. Or... We might go to Leviticus 20.13. If a man has sexual relations with a man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. So, if you are a uh, law-keeping Jew, uh, then this is absolutely relevant. I think it's still binding uh, if you are an Orthodox uh, Jew. Uh, however, for Christians, we are still trying. I mean, it's not always clear which laws are still in effect and which laws uh, are kind of no longer binding on us. Um, and so uh, when we apply Leviticus 20.13 and maybe not the rest of Leviticus, um, that becomes maybe a bit um, inconsistent. And again, I'm not saying Leviticus is inconsequential. It matters that we hear 
the witness, the sexual ethic that was expected of the Jews, because um, that will inform something of the Christian sexual ethic. After all, when Jews like Paul and Jesus talk about sexual immorality, uh, we can assume they have some of this background in mind, so we don't dismiss it. It's not irrelevant, it's just not the end of the conversation. And uh, we don't, as far as I know, apply all of the sexual ethic of Leviticus 20 either. Particularly verse 18, if a man has sexual relations with a woman during her monthly period, he has exposed the source of her flow, I hate that this is recorded, uh, and uh, she has also uncovered it. Both of them are to be cut off from their people. So, it's, it's uh, inconsistent because I don't know any churches who are saying, because of Levit- Leviticus' sexual uh, laws, uh, couples should not have sex when the woman is on her period. We just think, oh, that was probably one of those purity regulations back then, no longer binding now. Um, but it's right there in the midst of all these other uh, kind of sexual taboos in Leviticus 20. So, it's relevant, it's just not the end of the conversation. Uh, next, next week we'll bring in the New Testament witness to this, which is getting more relevant for the conversation, uh, although hopefully we're learning not to simply just pluck proof text, but we're going to try to hear things like the 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 1 especially within their context and within the larger framework of Scripture uh, and imagine how uh, that might inform um, our thinking on this today. Third um, way in which, and here's where I think um, it's getting, or maybe the most, uh, the most weight is right now, and this is um, people appealing to um, the fruit of the Spirit present <coughs> in the lives of, um, of gay Christians, uh, same-sex attracted, same-sex practicing, or it's so hard, what's the right language here? Uh, gay Christians who are engaged in uh, same-sex sexual activity within the context of marriage, maybe we'll say. Um, and so it's something like, um, I know gay Christians who are wonderful, upright, moral people. I have experienced uh, what can only seem to be uh, the Spirit of God at work in their hearts and in their lives. Uh, Surely this must mean uh, that God is okay uh, with with this um, scenario. Um, And I would say that that assumption moves too quickly Again, don't hear me. It's not irrelevant. We look for the, uh, the discerning the Spirit. It just moves too quickly as a conversation ender for a couple reasons. Um, one of those reasons is not, oh, no, it can't be the Spirit of God, um, or just to deny it or pretend like um, anyone who has same-sex sexual attraction can't do anything good. That's just stupid. Um, instead, here's a couple problems with moving too quickly um, to, to discerning the fruit of the Spirit and suggesting, therefore, God is okay with everything going on in that person's life. Um, first, is that Scripture, as we have learned in this class and as Christian tradition has taught us for the last 1,900 years, uh, Scripture is the authoritative revelation of the Spirit. Um, so we should test our own discerning of the Spirit against Scripture. Um, so when we, when we um, are seeking to discern the Spirit, um, 
we cannot, I mean, we're all faulty, right? None of us has the perfect spirit um, gauge on us. Uh, and it is hard, at least in my life, it's hard sometimes to tell the difference between what I think is the spirit of God and how I'm being influenced by the spirit of the culture uh, and how I'm being influenced by my own internal motives. Uh, it's not always easy to know when it's the spirit and when it's something else. And that's when it's important as Christians who are thinking wisely to test what we are trying to discern against the witness of the authoritative revelation of the Spirit that we find in Scripture. So, I'm not saying we don't seek to discern the Spirit, but I am saying we don't do so outside of conversation with the Spirit speaking in Scripture. Is that clear enough? Does that make some sense? Um, when we pit them against one another, uh, that seems to be unwise. Second um, part that I would add to this, why it moves too quickly, is that it wrongly assumes that if one evidences the Spirit in their life, then God approves of all their actions. I certainly believe that the Spirit is evident in my life, and I also believe that the Spirit doesn't approve of everything I do. That's moving too quickly. Um, we are all works in progress. This becomes ex just incredibly clear if you read through uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. These guys are prophesying, they're speaking in tongues, uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff that's showing this charismatic expression of the Spirit. And Paul's not saying that's not the Spirit. It very clearly is the Spirit present and at work um, in powerful and dramatic ways. And yet, Paul can say things like, the way you're doing the Lord's Supper is as though you're not doing it at all because you're shaming the poor in your midst. Or you can tell the guy, I cannot believe you as a church are letting that guy sleep with his mother-in-law. Surely you should know better. Um, even outside the church they know this is wrong. How can you not know this is wrong? So, um, it is, um, instead of thinking the evidence of the Spirit... Um, means that, uh, the, that the Spirit approves of everything. Uh, instead, we might be able to hold something more like, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit can very well be present in someone's life, and at the same time, uh, there might be a conflict uh, in other areas of their life where they might be living against the desires of the Spirit. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, that, I think that's clear enough. Um, how am I doing on time? I think, I think that might get us for today. Let me give you a preview of what we'll do next week, and then uh, I'm going to go curl up in the fetal position. And, uh, um, so next week we'll look at the New Testament witness um, and try to put it within the larger biblical framework. One of the things that I think was uh, helpful when we talked about uh, women ministry um, was that we tried to plot something of a trajectory of what we saw from the Old Testament uh, through the New. And so we'll ask, is there such a trajectory with regard to this issue or not? Um, as we look at the overall biblical witness. Um, part of our acronym on our little thing, the SEARCH acronym, is that we pay attention to our ancestors in the faith uh, and the larger community of faith. And so we might listen to how the global church um, is discerning um, Scripture and the Spirit on this and how um, the church uh, in the past has uh, discerned Scripture and the Spirit on this. And then I'll try to map all this onto the bullseye. I'll give you my take on this. 
Um, and, uh, and then I will suggest maybe some uh, doctrinal and pastoral um, ways of, uh, of embodying that. And then maybe I'll have time for Q&A if I'm feeling um, courageous enough for it. Um, all right, I, I think we'll get out a little early today.